Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by State Farm. Look, as you guys know, I tend to give it to you straight. And while I know a lot of things, I also know there are times when I need to lean on others for help. When it comes to insurance, State Farm Agent is the one I count on. I love that they make insurance easy. You can monitor your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim with their app, which was just awarded Best Insurance Mobile App of 2019. And thanks to their network of 19,000 agents, you'll have someone local to walk you through options and help you choose a policy that truly meets your needs versus cookie cutter coverage. But what I appreciate most is that they don't mess around. They don't bother with gimmicks or games, just helpful guidance you can rely on. Go out and get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. And now, the Dave Chang Show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thanks to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. A lot to go over this week. Uh, we have a great guest, Ian Bremer. We'll talk about him in a second, but there's obviously a lot going on in the world. If you've been following the news, as I think everyone has with the coronavirus and the uncertainty in the financial markets and such, and how that's going to impact the restaurant industry, and I'll get to that in a second. But first, I wanted to talk about three things. Number one being the passing of Chef Greg Koontz, who rose to extraordinary prominence as the chef of Les Panas. And if I had to put one of the most important restaurants in American history, it would be Les Panas, both under Greg Koontz and then later under Christian Duluvier. But what was happening under Chef Gray at Les Panas really was so instrumental in shaping modern-day flavors and techniques. And one of the greatest testaments to a chef's legacy are, are the alumni that have gone through his kitchen doors. Chef Gray has you know, molded so many amazing chefs from Rocco Desperado, Andrew Carmelini, Floyd Cordo's with the, uh, the CDC. There's countless, countless others. And if I had to put a lineup of one of the greatest kitchen crews of all time, I would certainly put Chef Gray and Les Panas at the top of the list of, of just a murderer's row. Um, it was the kind of kitchen, believe it or not, can you imagine this, where if you wanted to work there, you couldn't. Even if you wanted to work for free, you couldn't because um, there was just no way. <laughs> uh, it, it literally had sucked all the best talent in America. He was Swiss, but he traveled and worked abroad a lot in Asia, and he did something very different than what John George did in terms of the flavors. And I, I, I don't know how to describe it because I've only heard stories, and I've tried to accumulate a lot of stories about what he's done. And his amazing book, Elements of Taste with Peter Kaminsky, you should check it out. I remember getting that book at Kitchen Arts and Letters. It was such a big deal. And obviously, we've talked about in previous podcasts his Coon Spoon which I think is the tool of choice, both in a professional and, and home kitchen. But how he was able to bring together flavors that had never really been together, at least in America, and marry that with impeccable technique. Again, it's hard to overestimate his importance on, on American dining. And anyone that worked under Freddie Giraudet, uh, again, if you don't know about Freddie Giraudet and you are in the culinary industry, you should find out about him. Freddie Giraudet, 
one of the great chefs maybe ever. A lot of people thought he was the best chef of all time and bestowed that honor to Joel Robichon, who bestowed it on to Fran Adria and so on and so forth. But, you know, anyone that worked under him, that great chef, is sort of a legend. And and um, <laughs> he passed away at the age of 65. And, and I had a lot of friends that worked for him at Cafe Gray when it opened up at the Time Warner Center. And, uh, you know, when I worked for Andrew Carmelini, who worked for Chef Kuntz at Les Benos, there were certainly flavors that I've never had that certainly had trickled down from Chef Gray. And, um, you know, it was certainly a shock and he's someone that I obviously followed as to what he was doing because uh, widely admired and it was a real sad day. So if you don't know anything about Chef Gray Kuntz, there were some wonderful, beautiful obituaries written in the New York Times, New York Magazine, Eater, and uh, at least by his spoon if you don't know anything about and, and read his cookbooks. And I just, man, I hope a younger generation of cooks really appreciate the people that came before us. And I, I, again, like I know full well that I don't get to cook what I get to cook today if it wasn't for Chef Gray. So rest in peace. And um, you had a giant impact on my life and, and you may never know that. Um, so the second thing I wanted to talk about was core containers. It's a weird transition, but I get asked a lot what do I want to use at home in my home kitchen? So this is one of the topics I want to talk about in this podcast, uh, things that are practical and useful for listeners. And if you have worked in the industry or you're friends with someone in the industry, you see them most often drinking out of core containers. And, and this is, even though we're, we're going to do a big mailbag, there's been a good trickle of emails being like, why the fuck do I always drink out of a core container and a lot of pictures on social media or whatever? Uh, number one, it's like a quadruple big gulp. It's just a, a great amount of liquid. It's also something that is great storage for food. So even at my home, I buy them online and you can get pints and corks. But at home, I don't drink out of core containers because I think uh, my wife would be like, what the hell are you doing? But in the office or in the kitchen, that is my cup of choice. But at home, I just think it's a great way because you can stack them up. It doesn't take that much storage. And uh, it's still my, my storage of choice. Depending on restaurants in Sydney and Co., we use the metric system and we have square boxes of plastic, which are more precise and more organized because it's easier to stack and looks cleaner and it's more soigné. But at home, I am all about the core container of ease. And um, I think that too often when I'm at other places or visiting other apartments, I should say, and they order to go, they almost always put it in recycling after like Chinese takeout or any kind of delivery has been consumed. And I'm just telling you, save them. Not only because it's good for the environment to recycle, but there's no reason to throw out core containers ever, like literally ever. You can wash them and you can reuse them for a very, very long time. If you work in this hospitality business, you uh, I'm not like telling you anything new, core containers, but I'm simply saying you don't have to buy them online. If you get a lot of food delivery, you can definitely accumulate them. And I'm just tired of people throwing them away. I really tried to use them over and over and over again. There's no reason to throw them out. So save your core containers. And if you are 
obsessive about organizing as I am, just buy them online. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about was frozen is better in, in a lot of regards in terms of fruits and vegetables. And one of those things is peas. And I got into sort of an argument with um, a friend of my wife's who sort of made fun of me because I had cooked dinner with frozen peas. And they were like, that's sort of garbage and hack-ass. They didn't say that, but that's what they implied. And while true, I would easily take beautiful peas from Los Angeles right now. And the beautiful thing about Southern California, there are like two springs. You can get two seasons of English peas. Um, they're not always great fresh peas because the sugar content rapidly turns to starch. So you could almost do like day shucked peas sometimes. I remember talking to Rick Bishop about that a lot in Mountain Sweet Berry Farms based in New York, upstate New York. But like peas really do have a moment of window of, of being perfectly delicious. And yes, is a frozen pea as delicious as a perfectly sweet pea? Absolutely not. But when you're in the middle of winter, I think a frozen pea is a great way to add to fried rice or even make a soup or a puree. As I do now with Hugo, I make them a lot of green pea purees. And they're delicious. They really are delicious. I, I'm amazed. And the main reason why is you're picking these peas at its perfect sweet level, right? And yes, certain things get lost as a, in the freezing process. But for the most part, I'd rather take a really good frozen pea than an average fresh pea any day of the week. And um, I know a lot of recipes, particularly with pea farce, like if you want to do like a pea agnolotti or pea ravioli, you're most likely going to use a frozen pea. So embrace your frozen vegetables. One day I will post a bunch of recipes. I love frozen corn too. You know, a quick recipe is like, I actually like blitzing a bag of frozen corn and adding it to fresh corn sometimes because it's just easier to actually get that sort of cornstarch consistency in, in any way. You know what? I'm just going to shut up. It's a lot easier to come out with a, a book or just tell you what those recipes are written down than just me blabbling on forever. I just wanted to say, don't laugh at the frozen pea. Embrace it. It's much better than you realize. And, um, you know, it's a real uh, staple of my pantry. And I consider my freezer part of my pantry. So don't laugh uh, next time you see someone using it because maybe they know more than you do. Um, wanted to touch base about the coronavirus. I've been hesitant to talk about it because I'm not trying to create any panic or anything like that. I simply encourage everyone to wash their hands. But I do think that we need some more solidarity on this issue, and, and I think we should all encourage our local government representatives to really push forward for some kind of stimulus package. Because in the event that it does shut down businesses for any specific amount of time, even if it's a short period of time, you know, so many restaurants, independent operators, and retail business in general are often going not necessarily week to week, even though a lot are, but to be shut down a week, two weeks, three weeks, I don't know how many restaurants can get out of that. Um, and after seeing the aftermath of September 11th and Hurricane Sandy and the Great Recession of 2000, 2008, I have a lot of hesitancy. And I don't want this to be a downer, but um, I do believe that this is when the hospitality industry is at its best, is, is in our toughest moments. 
And I really, really believe that. And there's no bullshit in that. And it's what makes our industry the best is that in our most difficult hours, we can really try to help each other out and to elevate everyone. And I, and I really hope that we can see that if this gets out of control. And my hearts and prayers goes out to all the hospitality people and, and the people affected by coronavirus, particularly in the Pacific Northwest and Seattle area. I can't imagine what it's doing to the businesses there because certainly I think if you're in the hospitality industry, you are feeling it. Maybe more on the coast than anywhere else, but I certainly know it. And I'm certainly talking to my friends. And one more thing to all the people in Nashville, if you're not aware, there was a tornado that that ripped through it. Please uh, keep them in your, your thoughts and uh, send any kinds of... Um, Donations. I've, I think maybe the best way is just sort of follow Lisa Marie Donovan and, and Sean Brock as to what's going on. I don't know or, or follow the local news, but I've just been following Sean and hoping that uh, everyone pulls through. And um, that's a real tough thing, man. There's a lot of shitty things going on right now, man. I thought 2019 fucking sucked. 2020 is, uh, has not been that great. So without blabbering on forever wanted to get into our guest, Ian Bremmer. And we recorded this podcast, I would say a month ago. And just to give you a glimpse of how fast the world is moving, we didn't talk about a lot of things. We didn't talk about coronavirus. We didn't talk about um, a lot of different things. And quite frankly, I think some of the things we talked about that are so antiquated already, we just cut out. So You know, Ian Bremmer, if you don't know, is the president, founder of the political risk consulting firm Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. He is also the host of the podcast G Zero World with Ian Bremmer. And Ian is one of the smartest people I know. And he's the source I look to to better understand the world from a variety of angles. He's hilarious to follow his social media. It's just, not only informative and educational, but highly entertaining. And he's a great TV host. So check out GZR Media and um, just follow his work. He's, he's the author of several books. Ian always changes my perspective on what's happening in the world. And I always come away from our conversation somehow feeling smarter and dumber simultaneously because he is one of the smartest people I know. And he can really explain complex issues. And he's the kind of person that world leaders depend on to explain complex issues as well, because he's that fucking smart. Because it's politics, I'm sure that some people will find something to be upset about. And I implore you to sort of listen, because, you know, he brings up some very solid points in this podcast about understanding, you know, a pragmatic approach to truth, how it's useful to somebody. So multiple perspectives. But I'm trying to be better at listening to all sides of an argument. And I think if you listen to Ian, you're really going to learn something, as I do. Even if you're in the food industry and you think this stuff doesn't affect you, I promise you it does in so many ways. And, you know, maybe the best way to understand what's going on in the food world is to study things outside our industry. And Ian Bremmer is certainly someone that I follow and I try to study. And... As the world gets more and more complex, I really do rely on his knowledge and his foresight to sort of help me make better decisions as to how we operate. And I think everyone in the hospitality business or just the world at large today could use some better insights. So uh, I will shut up. Here's my conversation with Ian Bremmer. 
I met Ian Bremmer on a plane, and I was I cooked at this event, and I do it every year. And my my seatmate was Ian, and we got to hang out and got to know each other. And I realized, oh, this guy's incredibly smart. And I didn't realize that he was one of these probably the smartest individuals I've ever met that was also talking quite a bit at this conference. And he started the Eurasia Group in 1998, and it's the world's largest political risk consultancy. Yep. You also have a media company, and you're on TV a lot, and you have a podcast, and you have written how many books? Uh, Ten. Ten books. The most recent one was? Called Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. And... I look to you to explain to me the things that happen in this world. I get an email every week, and it's my, this is what's going on in the world politics. I am not sophisticated in what's going on in the world, which is why I, I depend on your input and your sort of savvy. And, and I look to you to help explain to me what's happening in the global food industry. Really? And, and, you, and, and you know, your audience should realize that when we get together, we probably talk half about each of those topics, right? I mean, that's, I think that's one of the really cool things about our relationship <laughs> is that we clearly learn a shitload from each other, well, right? I, I think you, um, me more than you, right? But I've been talking to a lot of my peers as I usually do. And I know that there's a lot of listeners that are in the food business and this is certainly for them, this podcast, but also for anyone that wants to understand the geopolitical landscape, which is more important than ever. And I'll have Ian talk about that. But the reason why I wanted Ian on, besides for a variety of reasons, but you know, recently I've been asking a lot of my friends what they thought about the wine tariffs proposed by Trump and the pork industry and China and all these issues that I know are going to change my industry, the culinary restaurant landscape. And I've been shocked that most people don't have an opinion about it. They're just like, it's not going to really affect me right now. And I'm like, no, you can't say that anymore. These are important issues, and I can't think of anyone better to help explain a lot of these things than Ian. Well, thank you, Dan. That was a a nice and very sane kind of wind-up there. Yeah, how about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, it's, it's wonderful to be with someone who is in so much control of the way you spend your time and what you do, and you're so obviously passionate about it. And I definitely feel like as I've gotten old, I just hit 50 a few months ago. Uh, so I've got a few on you. I've got a few on you. But I do. I try to spend a lot of time thinking about, am I really spending my time in a way that is useful? And for me, that means trying to help people better understand the world around us. That's that's what I'm here for. And you, you basically have said that in some of your talks and your writings. And to sort of phrase it for people that may not know a lot of the things that are happening, including myself is that the word geopolitical and what you do probably wasn't at the forefront of like thought process of critical decision-making. Why do we need to know more about this than ever before? It it wasn't, and it didn't need to be as much. And part of it is selfish. I mean, if you're the United States and you're by far the biggest guy out there, other countries are going to have to deal with what you want or they're in trouble. Right. And when the Soviet Union collapsed 1991, I mean, our model, right, of free market capitalism as well or as badly organized as it is, and our model of liberal democracy, ditto, still, it was kind of like love it or tough for all those other countries. That's not true anymore. And, And the other point is that the global order itself is unwinding. All of the traditional rules and norms of how alliances work 
the institutions that we believed kind of ran the way we think about the world, those are all unwinding now. And we don't know what comes next. But the old U.S.-led global order, that's not where we are. And I have read this, and you've coined like the perfect word for this, right? This is the G0... It's not the G7. It's not the G20. It's an absence of leadership. It's a vacuum geopolitically, a geopolitical recession, or what I call the G0. Yeah. Can you explain that in lay terms for someone that has no idea what you're talking about? So G, when you have these summits together of a G7, which is the largest, you know, sort of seven advanced industrial economies or the G20, the world's largest 20 countries and their leaders get together in a big summit and they talk about the world. And that implies when you hear the G7, the G20, you say, well, these leaders are coming together and they're figuring out the way the world should work, the way the world should be led. And what I'm saying is, no, we don't have a G7. We don't have a G20. We don't have a G1 where the United States is the one making those rules. We have a G0. We look at the global landscape today and no one is in charge. We look at how we're going to respond to climate change. And the answer is a whole bunch of people doing different things, but no organizing principle. How are we going to respond to coronavirus? No one's in charge. And number one, that's kind of scary for a lot of people, but it's also a reason why those people need to start thinking about geopolitics. What happened? How come the vacuum happened? What happened? Well, there are a few reasons for it. One reason is that the United States itself is less interested in being the global sheriff or the architect of global trade or the cheerleader of global values. Now, why? Why are we less interested? Well, we fought a lot of wars that went badly and we pissed off a lot of Americans, right? Um, Free trade, a lot of wealthy people in America love free trade, but a lot of average Americans feel like they lost their jobs or they weren't benefited and inequality has grown, so they don't support it. And even questions of global values, a lot of Americans are saying, why are we promoting democracy all over the world? We're not good at it. And plus, look at our own democracy. We're not so sure that we even believe in the precepts of democracy in the US. So that's part of it. Another part of it is our allies are weaker. Our allies are more divided. Brexit, which just happened, right, just a few weeks ago. That's a piece of it. Inside Europe, much harder to get alignment inside countries that themselves are saying, we're not so sure that we believe in the European Union or we believe in the traditional centrist establishment parties or the CEOs or the bankers the way we did before. You saw the the, uh, Gilets Jaunes movement, the Yellow Vest movement in France, for example. Same sort of thing you saw with Brexit. Same sort of thing you see with Trump and Sanders in the U.S., Then you've got the Chinese. The Chinese are absolutely going to be the world's largest economy in the next 10 years. But in the last 30, 40 years, everyone that looked at China said, well, when they get powerful, they're going to become more like us. They're going to become more oriented towards our free market. They're going to become more liberal democratic. They're going to politically and economically reform. That's not happening anymore. In fact, Xi Jinping is moving them in another direction. They're becoming more top-down authoritarian using data and surveillance to have better controls over their people. And they're still very much state capitalist, where the government is the most important economic actor, not the individual corporation. So that that completely subverts the idea of a global free market. When the world's largest economy isn't a free market, then you don't have a global free market anymore. Final point is that the Russians are in decline, but they're angry and they're angry at us particularly the US, but the West more broadly, and they're risk acceptant. And they're willing to take steps to try to undermine 
our democracy, undermine our friends' democracies, undermine the transatlantic relationship. So the Chinese at least weren't coming in and trying to sow discord inside the US before the 2016 election. But if you go look at Black Lives Matter, the, the most popular Black Lives Matter social media site with almost 500,000 followers was a fake news Russian created wow. site. So they're doing that. So if you put those four things together, right? US, our allies, China and Russia, that's why the G0. That's why the absence of global leadership. It is overdetermined, right? You have more than enough reasons to explain it. And with this sort of free for all then and void of leadership, how does that affect something as reductive as what gets served in a restaurant? I mean, certainly it means that the prices, right, of certain goods become more expensive because you no longer have a single global marketplace. So you have less efficiency in supply chains, for example. So when you have in the United States, I mean, we say Trump pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but Obama couldn't get it done. Bernie Sanders was opposed to it. Even Hillary Clinton, who was the architect of the damn thing, said that she wouldn't support in his present form because there was so much opposition domestically and in Congress. Well, if you can't get multilateral free trade deals done, then the prices of goods are gonna go up. Then tariffs are gonna remain comparatively high. You're gonna have more people fighting over how the global economy works. Supply chains become shorter as a consequence of that. Now, some of that's also happening because we don't need as much labor in the supply chain, but that's happening more slowly than the geopolitical changes we're talking about right now. So yeah, it does actually affect it. When I think about geopolitical, I don't know why, the first thing that always comes to my mind is war. And, you know, recently we had, it was this weird feeling like, oh, wait, is the U.S. going to go to war with Iran or something like that? And I've heard you speak about this quite a bit. And I was- And I said no. You said no. Yeah. But these are important issues because let's just say we did go to war. That's not just going to change restaurants. That's going to change the economy for everyone. Is that something we have to worry about at all I, still? I, I think that part of my job, um, when, when, when right at the beginning of the, of the year, when we went and assassinated this Iranian leader, Soleimani, I decided to change my New Year's resolution. <laughs> and, and it became, I'm going to try to convince people that World War III is not imminent. That was, that was my New Year's resolution for 2020 because people were going crazy, yeah. crazy. And this is also just a problem in this country, right? I mean, I see a lot of friends, a lot of people I respect have allowed Trump to hurt them emotionally. He's touching them in the bad place, right? We should stop that. We need to, like, we don't need our opinion leaders to be crazy. We need them to actually be sane and to be calming down the rest of us. And there's a lot of dangerous stuff out there, but World War III is not imminent. And with Iran, for example, like they had done a lot of things on the back of, so what happened, let's, 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 we go way back. There was an Iranian nuclear deal that the Obama administration signed with the Iranian president. And it was a limited deal. It only involved their nukes. We weren't happy with them on other stuff. So they support terrorist organizations like Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad. They develop ballistic missiles, which are under sanction from the UN. All the deal dealt with was their nuclear program. But we sold it as this big deal because everyone wanted to show that it was a big breakthrough. So once the deal is done, we're not happy because they're still doing stuff we don't like. They're not happy because they still have sanctions from the United States and our allies against them for the other stuff they're doing that we don't like, right? So 
Obama's gone. Trump comes in. Trump hates everything Obama does. So he wants to get out of that deal, right? And so then he pulls out of the deal and the Iranians are all pissed off and their economy tanks. Last year, their economy went down by 10%. That's a severe recession on the back of all these new sanctions we put on by pulling out of this limited Iranian nuclear deal. They get pissed. They try to get the Europeans to push us to get back in the deal. They fail because we're much more powerful than the Europeans. Try to get the Europeans to still do business with Iran. They fail because we say, well, sanction the Europeans. The Europeans don't care about Iran. They care about doing business with the US. We're much bigger. So finally, the Iranians are getting angry and they start doing stuff. So what do they do? They hit some tankers. They knock down some drones. They even launch missiles against the Saudis, the biggest oil processing facility in the world. 50% of all Saudi oil is taken off market and the Iranians hit it, right? And Trump doesn't do anything. Trump doesn't do anything because none of that's affecting the United States. Oil prices are still low. Those are our allies, but they're not America. Why do we care? We don't care about the Middle East so much anymore. We are the largest oil producer in the world. So then the Iranians finally say, well, this is the only way we can get anyone to pay attention. Now we're going to hit the Americans. So what do they do? They go after the American embassy in Baghdad. They demonstrate. They occupy some of it. And they hit some Americans in this base in Iraq, in Kirkuk. An American dies. And the supreme leader comes out and he says, that's it. He tweets. He says, Trump can't do anything. The American president can't respond to us. That was probably a mistake, right? So then what does Trump do? Trump's like, yeah, watch this. So he kills the Iranian military leader. And everyone's like, it's going to be World War III. No, we, they had no idea what the red lines were. They didn't know what the deterrence was. They didn't know there would be consequences. So finally, Trump kills this guy. Now they know there are consequences. What do the Iranians do? They back the hell down. And this is, wasn't this what people wanted Trump to do when they started sort of provoking people, but he didn't do anything? They wanted Trump to respond in a more incremental fashion. They wanted him to support the allies. So if they're hitting some tankers, they want the Americans to show we're going to defend those tankers. If they knock down a drone... Mattis, who was Secretary of Defense, wanted the Americans to make sure that there were armed, uh, 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 manned fighter jets that would actually escort unmanned drones uh, when they were doing surveillance into Iran to show the Iranians we mean business. When you hit the Saudis, they want us to hit the Iranians back. So a more incremental approach. But since Trump had done nothing to respond to all of those Iranian actions over the course of almost a year, then when Trump does react, and he's reacting when, he, when the Iranians hit the U.S. directly, of course, he's going to have to react in a much more escalatory fashion to show that, no, the Americans are serious, they mean business, and we're a lot more powerful than the Iranians are. And let's be clear, Iran is by far the biggest adversary of the U.S. in the region, but they are not suicidal, right? And so the likelihood of World War III coming out of that attack was virtually zero. And, and because so many people were so surprised and so many people just think that Trump is a madman who can do anything, they thought this could be World War III. And yet on every occasion where Trump has had opportunity to use American military force as opposed to talking big or displaying uh, tariffs and sanctions, he's actually on the military side been quite restrained. That's been consistent. He doesn't really want a big new American war on his shoulders. In fact, he wants to end a lot of the wars the U.S. has been fighting. 
unsuccessfully has tried to get troops out of Afghanistan, out of Iraq, out of Syria, gotten a lot of pushback from the U.S. military industrial complex and American allies. But his orientation has been that. You remember Venezuela. You had John Bolton was national security advisor, was trying to push the Americans to support this guy, Guaido, the opposition leader, get Maduro out. And Trump's like, I'm not putting military forces in Venezuela. I'm not doing that. And Bolton, of course, is gone. Uh, Maduro in Venezuela is still there. Assad in Syria, still there. Um, this is what's happening. Is this good or bad? And is this like unintentionally Trump doing good things or bad things? Like this is the thing when I have a hard time parsing any of this stuff out. Before you go to good and bad, it's very important to just know what's happening. Right. So we start with that. We start with World War Three is not likely. There are some good things and some bad things. I mean, one good thing is that America no longer has the same need to intervene in the Middle East that we did 10, 20 years ago. We are producing more oil and gas than any other country in the world. And that means that even when the Saudis get hit, oil prices are staying comparatively low. Now, that also means that it's easy to get more oil and gas out of the ground, which is a problem for you know, fossil fuels, climate change, and the rest. So if you're a, if you're only focused on climate change, you might say that's a bad thing. If you're an American consumer, working class, and you're driving like hell or taking a, you know, a public even transit to get someplace, the prices go up. Um, that's a bad thing for you. For the U.S. economy, um, you know, obviously you're 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 better off. Um, mm. And if the economy is growing, so I'm I'm a little to say good thing and bad thing already implies that we know the audience we're talking to. Are we talking just to Americans or are we talking to the world, right? right. Are we talking to wealthy Americans or are we talking to poor Americans? Are we talking to Republicans or are we talking to Democrats? Like the world's gotten so polarized, it's hard to do good thing and bad thing. But I can, I can, I'm happy to walk you through right. any individual issue and tell you what I think is gonna happen. And then we can parse out the implications. It is pretty clear that in terms of US relations with Iran, it is a good thing that we are very unlikely to head to war with each other. I think we can clearly say that. Um, it's a bad thing that there are virtually no prospects for the Americans and the Iranians to have a diplomatic breakthrough that would allow us to have a more stable Middle East. Hmm. This is why I talk to you, because I just learned so much right there. Didn't you? My goodness. He's snotting his head, yes, yes, just so you guys know that are listening to the podcast, but you don't have 360 surround yeah, video. It's important to know that. I was like, wow, I, I didn't think about it in a morally relative way. And of course, we have to think in a relative way in this in this time and age now, right? I mean, look, a lot of Americans think that anything that's good for America is just obviously good. And one of the reasons that Trump won is that America first feels viscerally, really importantly, you know, positive. But, you know, when I see that the Chinese are spending hugely more money around the world, getting countries to align with them. Just today, the Philippines ended their military agreement with the United States to allow Americans to be based in the Philippines. Now, hey, maybe we don't need to spend that money. Maybe it's not important for us to have that footprint. But the reason the Philippines is doing that is because even though Duterte, the president of the Philippines, has good relations with Trump, is because the Chinese are dominant economically in the Philippines today. The United States is not doing a Marshall Plan outside the US. Our companies are investing a lot, but the Americans are cutting back on military aid. We want to do less militarily, and we're certainly not doing industrial policy supporting our companies to create infrastructure all over the world. So, you know, just saying things are good for America, not thinking about what's happening in the rest of the world, just isn't going to cut it for our kids anymore. I bet you you're going to have to brush people up on the Marshall Plan. 
The Marshall Plan after World War II, the Americans were the only country left standing. I mean, not only did we defeat, of course, the Japanese and Nazi Germans, but also our allies in Europe were completely destroyed. So what we did is we decided to rebuild Europe, both our allies and our former enemies, and created real economies that could trade with us, with rule of law and with free markets, within a constellation of institutions like the World Bank and the IMF and the United Nations that were basically supportive of American values because we're the ones that created them. And in Japan, we sent General MacArthur to rebuild Japan, said they couldn't have an army, right? Said they couldn't, they, they, we changed their constitution that made it make sure that they weren't going to be a rising power that was going to be able to cause havoc all over the region and the world, but we rebuilt Japan. Now today, the Chinese are doing something called Belt and Road, and they are investing massive amounts of money to build bridges and roads and ports and export technology infrastructure to com countries like Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, East and Southern Europe, even Latin America. The Americans are not doing that. So we're they're not doing, doing their again. version of the Marshall Plan. Belt their and version. Road. Their version that does not include, we want you to become liberal democratic if you take our money because the Chinese aren't liberal democratic. So why would they support that? It's much more transactional. The Belt and Road is all about doing better business with the Chinese and doing politically what the Chinese want, irrespective of what kind of a system you have. And the Americans have no response to it today. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard, multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. You can even add screening questions to your job listing so you can filter candidates and focus on the best ones. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, try ZipRecruiter for free. My listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's show is also brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn how to barbecue from Aaron Franklin, one of the greatest chefs in America. Thomas Keller can teach you French cuisine, as can Gordon Ramsay. And Alice Waters can show you the wonders of Bay Area cooking farm to table cooking at its very best. You can improve your skills from a wide variety of instructors, 75 different ones at that across tons of categories. There's literally something for everyone, including hostage negotiations from a former FBI chief hostage negotiator. I love Masterclass. We had David Epstein on a few months ago for his book, Range, and I genuinely think that Having Masterclass can give you the range to be a better chef, a better leader in a variety of fields because you're 
literally getting the best wisdom from the best people in all walks of life. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, Apple TV, or Amazon Fire TV. Each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, all of which you can explore at your own pace. Lessons are about 10 to 15 minutes in length, so they can fit into your busy schedule. Single classes are $90, and the all-access pass is $180 a year. That's an amazing deal because you can check out anything you're interested in. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a Dave Chang listener, you get 15% off your annual all access pass. 15% off. That's a great deal. Go to masterclass.com slash Chang. That's masterclass.com slash Chang. C-H-A-N-G for 15% off masterclass. When China does become the world's largest economy, do they take America's place in the G0 climate? No, they don't. And it's important to understand why. Militarily, the United States spends more than the next seven countries combined. And in the last three years under Trump, the gap between U.S. and Chinese spending is actually expanding. It's not getting smaller. So militarily, China's only a regional power. They're not close to a global military power. Also, we're the largest energy producers in the world. We're the largest food producers in the world. The Chinese import both of those things. So even though China will be the economic superpower globally, to take America's place implies an awful lot of other things that the Chinese won't have. They're also still a poor country per capita. The average Chinese is still mid-income and the demands that they have of the Chinese government as a consequence are much more about, we want to get a car. We want to improve our diet. We want to eat meat. We want protein. Like stop, you know, all of this uh, old, old style, um, you know, what, what, it, what it was like to be poor and impoverished in Chinese in the rural areas. The Americans don't have to worry about that. So the ability of the Americans to do international diplomacy and humanitarian aid and all of these things that we equate with advanced industrial democracies, even if we're turning away from it now, the Chinese are nowhere close. So no, I don't think we're close to China playing America's role, but China will prevent America from playing the role that we used to play, even if we decided that we suddenly wanted to play it again. And we're not, we're not necessarily on that path anyway. China is something I talk a lot about in my company and whether it's literally the kind of cuisine, but also, you know, we, we're, we're expanding our presence and more and more. And from every sort of perspective of food, like China comes up in, in some way or fashion. And I keep on going back to like the sort of the bottleneck, like it, they say like in 2050, won't, there won't be enough like protein units in the world for, for everyone. And I don't know if it's alarming enough to people that China bought Smithfield. The pork which, producer. Again, and I know from a foodie perspective, you're like, well, that they make shitty commodity pork, whatever. Like that, that's not the question I'm asking. It's like, wait, they bought the largest pork producer in America, maybe the world, and it's now Chinese owned. And I'm pretty sure they own a bunch of other like huge processing or huge, you know, food sources. Isn't that a national security concern? So my feeling was that they um, were more interested in buying Smithfield to understand improved management, processing, and the like of the industry 
than they were to guarantee a source of commodities. Um, the United States, if food ever became a serious national security issue, we would stockpile. We wouldn't sell. We would change our views of these corporations to become strategically critical for the United States in the same way that we're cutting the Chinese off from investing into robotics and AI in the U.S. because we think that's a danger to our national security. Um, you know, we've had these questions before. You remember in the 70s, there was this big book that came out, The Population Bomb, right. where we thought we'd have 10 billion people by now and we wouldn't be able to feed them. And it turns out that actually, as people get wealthier, uh, they have fewer kids. As people become more urbanized, as women get educated, they have fewer kids. As wealth goes up, they have fewer kids. Um, and also that um, our food companies have just gotten vastly more efficient over time. And in terms of you know use of fertilizers and GMOs and growth and the rest, now, I'm really worried about Sub-Saharan Africa because you've got a lot of governments that actually, out of a lack of understanding of science, refuse to allow in advanced growing techniques. And as a consequence, you look at like cassava production in Kenya, and it's gone way down from what it should be. And the Gates Foundation is deeply concerned about this. So it's not that we don't have the technology, so we've got bad government. And of course, equatorial Africa is really getting hit by climate change. And so as a consequence, you know, they're the ones that are gonna be most squeezed. So it's the poorest parts of the world that will end up being the most screwed as a consequence, the worst governed, they're the ones that are gonna be completely hit uh, by the wealthy countries that are putting the carbon into the atmosphere, taking advantage of the growth, and these other people that have never had the carbon footprint are the ones that are most screwed. So we definitely have problems, but the problems I think are more about inequality than they are about there isn't enough food. Yeah, and I never thought about it that way. <clears throat> Cause I always take the perspective as like, oh, how's this gonna affect my business? How's this gonna affect the, the the actual food universe that I work in. And again, selfishly, I'm not thinking about, it. I was like, wait, I can't get this product. People are going to be mad, yeah. but I'm not even thinking about, wait, there are people that literally are going to go starving because of the food inequality elsewhere. When well, you asked right at the beginning about, you know, sort of uh, tariffs that uh, Trump had said he was going to put on the French uh, champagne, wine, right? Italian Parmesan, all yep. this sort of thing, which clearly would have affected your business in a real way. Um, it would decimate it. Absolutely. And and first of all, Trump heard that. And by the way, uh, there's been a lot of talk about automotive tariffs uh, that the U.S. could put against the Europeans. And he's heard that from the automotive producers as well, the SUV producers, all the rest. What's interesting is that, you know, uh, a lot of the concern about Trump from the elites in the United States, the business elites, the bankers, came from him talking really tough about tariffs. And yet it turned out that he wanted to use that as a lever much more than he wanted to really get into a trade war with countries. So for example, I mean, he doesn't exactly have diplomatic skills. So he antagonized a whole bunch of folks and he talked really tough against the Mexicans, the Canadians, but actually he didn't break NAFTA. He ended up getting a new deal, a more modernized deal signed between the US, the Mexicans and the Canadians. And we're not worried today about are we not gonna be able to actually trade between the most important uh, economies integrated with the United States right now, our neighbors. So he's bluffing. Well, I wouldn't say he's completely bluffing in the sense that with China, he did actually put tariffs right. on that, you know, with the Chinese and the Chinese did reciprocate with the Americans. And that did lead to challenges for, for example, folks that are dealing with 
auto parts and textiles and the rest. And some of them moved to countries like Vietnam. But he even there, as we got closer to the election, he ended up working really hard to accept the phase one trade deal that didn't have the Chinese giving us very much, but made sure the markets didn't get tanked. And the connection that you have with Trump is that your business, part of American business across this country, is very linked to the performance of the economy and the performance of the markets. And if there's one thing Trump watches every day, it's how are the markets doing? There's one thing he's always very proud of. It's, this economy is great. It's doing better (laughs) under me than anyone else. Look at how well, look how many people are employed. Look how much money we're bringing in. Oh my God, we're going to hit 50,000 out, right? I mean, he does follow that. And so if he were to start really hitting the Europeans, the world's largest common market, or the Chinese, the world's second largest economy with major tariffs. Those are the countries that can hit us back too. That will hurt us. It will hurt our markets. It will hurt our businesses. And so certainly we haven't seen much of that in reality since Trump has become president. We've seen a lot of concerns, a lot of volatility around those concerns, but we haven't seen him really follow through. Now, the question to ask is if he wins election in November, and he's no longer thinking about, I'm going to get reelected. Because that's it. Two turns. You're done. And if the American economy starts taking a hit anyway, because we've got these massive deficits and the global economic cycle is softening. In other words, if he can no longer be in a position where he can say these things are going well, he's going to need to blame people. And he's much more likely to blame the Chinese than he is going to be looking inside the U.S. So you can imagine that after the election, Trump could be much more dangerous on things like tariffs that could really affect your business precisely because all bets are off then in terms of his short-term incentives. I mean, he's clearly shown in terms of leaving the Paris deal. He's clearly shown in terms of his willingness to run trillion-dollar deficits. He doesn't really care much about our kids, right? He's much more short-term transactional. He's not a big business owner. He's a real estate guy. You do a deal. You're never going to meet that person again. You move on to the next deal. Well, what happens when he's no longer constrained by the next election? The potential that suddenly the questions that you're raising that could really hurt your business might become real, those become a greater risk, I think, in a second Trump term, if he wins. Yeah. Two things. One, your Trump impression is fantastic. No, it's not. <laughs> I you're thought it was pretty good. Wrong. I thought it was pretty good. Um, Did you see that thing he sent me? No. You, see that? you didn't see that? No. Oh, it was hilarious. So he sent me, I, you know, I write for Time Magazine. I do this foreign affairs piece every week. And he ripped out one of my articles. It was about um, trade in Asia Uh-oh. and how when he left TPP, that was helping the Chinese. He ripped it out and he wrote on it, Ian, so wrong. <laughs> So many opportunities for us still, Donald Trump. And he sent to me, had a couriered over to my office. I was like, this is awesome, right? So, I, you know, I framed it, of yeah. course, and put it in the bathroom. It's all cool. Um, but uh, but you know, he, he's a master troll, right? I mean, he loves this stuff and he does read your stuff. And he, you know, and he's engaged, he's amused by it. So it's, uh, it's sort of, in, it's, you know, you wouldn't expect a president of the United <laughs> States to necessarily do that. But uh, on any given day, you just don't know what he's going to, what he's going to do. It's true. (laughs) Wow. That's a good story. I mean, whether it's the tariffs or not, like he's definitely affected the food business and food ways in ways no other president has ever done. And whether he's going to roll back nutrition standards in schools or, or more specifically, I think immigration, right? This has been 
the hot button subject for everyone. And I, again, I've been vehemently opposed to how he's affected a lot of the, the restaurant laborers. What's going to happen there on, on his stance on immigration? Because this is the central topic. Tariffs important. Yeah. But this is for the restaurant business, the most important subject, I think. I'm glad you raised both of these. I mean, certainly, you know, one of the things that Trump has been most disappointing on in terms of the average American has been his not only lack of draining the swamp, but his giving the cabinet to the swamp. And when you look at things like food rules, right, I mean, in schools, rolling back, you know, the regulations around nutrition for our kids. And I mean, obviously, if you look at Trump's, you know, personal size. You understand this is not something, and his diet, he doesn't really care. He's, he talks about Mike Bloomberg as mini Mike, but I mean, given Trump's diet, he could end up being literally <laughs> twice the man that Mike Bloomberg is by the time we get to election, just in terms of physical mass, right? He could be twice the man of Mike Bloomberg. Um, but I mean, obviously he's got a cabinet that is so oriented towards getting rid of regulations and supporting the private sector. And we've seen, I mean, he has the head of a food, you know, fast, former fast food yeah. company that's actually in charge of writing regulations for diet in schools. This is clearly a disaster for our kids. So, I mean, that's, that's a place where, you know, we need better regulations. The government needs to be an arbiter, a neutral arbiter, and not captured by, not in the pocket of private industry. The U.S. has long had a problem with that money playing too much of a role in the regulatory um, agencies. And that's even more true now under Trump than it has been under previous administrations. So I really feel for you on that issue. When it comes to immigration, it's a little more challenging because there isn't as much support for as many migrants coming over in the U.S. as there has been 20, 40, 50 years ago. And some of that is because we just don't need as much labor as we used to. Particularly, we don't need as much low-cost labor. I mean, you know, when Reagan said, I'm going to tighten the border, within two years, he tightens the border. He doubles the border police. No one's picking the, the fruit and vegetables and our prices go up and everyone raises holy hell. Quietly, he gets rid of that extra security. Today, you know, you don't need as many people. A lot of that's becoming automated. It's becoming much more efficient. So you don't have the same strength in lobby to get the low cost labor in the United States that you did before. And your industry is one that's being clearly adversely hit by this. But, you know, when it comes to the people that need the STEM, you know, uh, uh, education that needs the highest quality labor, really expensive, those folks are getting exceptions for their, um, right. their H1Bs and, you know, Microsoft and other firms like that. So that's, that's one where, you know, on the one hand, it's changing, that's uh, disentangling labor from capital. Um, and on the other hand, it's a whole bunch of average Americans that are saying, why are we letting more people in when you're not taking care of me? When you haven't actually focused on the last wave of migrants. And that's a problem, not just in the US, but across Europe. It's a problem in all sorts of countries where the average citizen in these countries is saying enough of this. And we, we clearly, I mean, immigration policy is broken, but also the debate needs to change. And I worry about those things. I, I, I'm, I don't know what's going to happen there. Right. I, I have a lot of concern, and I know a lot of people are very scared. Um, I have a lot of friends in, in Europe. I have a lot of chef friends in Europe. I have a lot of chef friends in, in London. And one of the topics that we always get is, hey, is Momofuku going to open up in London or the UK? And I'm always like, I don't know. And my first question, 
thing that pops in my head is what's going on with this Brexit thing? How is this going to affect just food and restaurants and just commerce in general for London? I don't know if a lot of Americans understand yeah. how this is all going to play out now that it's done. It's it's not done. Uh, they're out, but they don't yet have an agreement for ongoing trade with the Europeans. And Boris Johnson, although he has won a strong majority in the Conservative Party and therefore has more flexibility in the kind of deal he can do with the Europeans, he has promised that he will get it done by the end of this year. And the Europeans have a lot of other things they're focused on. They aren't really going to get to this until the second half of the year. Uh, there are a lot of differences of opinions inside Europe of how you do such a deal. The, the possibility that they can't get a deal done by the end of the year is real. And that means Boris Johnson either needs to back off or he needs to accept a pure bare bones free trade agreement, which will hurt the UK's access to a lot of the European market. And that will clearly seriously depress the UK economy, um, UK labor, UK consumer capacity. So I, I'm not, if I were you thinking about where to open in Europe, um, I would not be thinking, let's make a big bet on the UK until you have clarity on that issue. And that is a minimum of January and could be longer than that. And this is why what you do is so important. And I could imagine if I wasn't in the restaurant business and I was a other corp some other corporation doing work, I was like, I need to know the political landscape to get a better idea of what the future is going to be for my business. And now I would understand why I need your, your brain power. I, know that, I mean, there are, there, these are issues. So 20 years ago, if you were a big corporation, you largely needed us if you were doing business in really abstruse emerging markets. So, I mean, if you're doing, if you were doing business, you know, in Colombia or you're doing business in Nigeria 20 years ago, you have no business doing business there unless you understand the politics, because the politics can change radically and completely undermine your business model. But if you were Momofuku 20 years ago and you're largely in the United States and maybe Japan and a little Canada, you don't need Eurasia Group 20 years ago. You just didn't need what we did. But today you do. And today you do because the entire geopolitical order is changing because the regulatory environment, even in the wealthy countries, is much more unstable because the Brits are engaging in Brexit for four years now and counting. They're completely changing the nature of their institutional architecture. These things matter a lot. And there's no such, is there such thing as an emerging market anymore? Yeah, sure. Emerging markets are still countries, I would define, where politics matter at least as much as economics to market outcomes. So, you know, you can elect Trump in the United States, but ultimately he can only have so much impact on the domestic politics, right? He can do executive orders, but fundamentally he says he's gonna build a wall, he can't really build much of a wall. He says he's gonna change immigration, he can't really change much immigration. He says he's gonna put crazy people in the Fed, he ends up putting the same people in the Fed that Romney would have or, or Rubio would have because American institutions are strong and they're hard to change. But um, if, you hap if that happens in Turkey, or that happens in Russia, that happens in China, the regulatory environment changes much more. So there's still a, a significant difference in how flexible, how changeable, how mutable institutions are, regulations are in the developed world, and therefore how much impact they'll have on your business as they would in emerging markets. And the pricing needs to reflect that. You have to be given a serious discount. Hmm. Because you're taking on more risk if you want to go and do your business um, in a country that doesn't have the same level of institutional stability. You brought up Turkey, and I, I, uh, I filmed 
there last year and I had always wanted to go to Istanbul and it blew me away. But it was also amazing at almost every conversation had to do with what was happening in Turkey. Turkey and, yeah. and, and the, the, the Syrian crisis was like the immigration Mexican problem we had in America. It was just every conversation was there. This has nothing to do with America, but for food it does for me because I, I, I genuinely love the cuisine. Uh, what's going to happen there with, with Syria and that sort of mess? Well, so two big problems with Turkey. The first is that they have a government run by now president and former prime minister Erdogan, um, which who has tried to change the system so that it is purely responsive to him. And he's not been able to accomplish that, in part because the economy is failing under his watch, and in part because um, he's lost a lot of his own supporters. So he lost the, uh, the mayoral race in Istanbul. He ran it again. He lost by almost a million votes. It's the most important city economically by far in the entire country. The commercial uh, value of that really matters. The ability to dispense pork inside the country. And here I mean, you know, the figurative pork of, of how politics works. Um, and a lot of his former supporters, the insiders, the former prime minister, deputy prime minister, foreign minister, they've left his party and they're creating alternative political movements. So domestically, he's very vulnerable. There's been a lot of corruption around him. And if he loses power, they're going to go after him. They're going to go after his family. It's dangerous for him to lose power, right? And so what he's done in part is try to gin up support on the national side by engaging in adventurism outside of Turkey, in Libya, for example, in Syria, for example, with the Russians when he knocked down that Russian plane that was in Turkish airspace and it destroyed their economy for months, right? But he was saying, I can stand up to Putin. So, you know, you've got a leader who, because he's in economically hard straits at home and his popularity is sinking, is more willing to take risks internationally. And he doesn't have a lot of friends in the region. So that's a dangerous place. Turkey's become one of the more unstable actors out there. Even though once Erdogan leaves power, Turkey, they've got, the good, they've got good businesses. They've got a strongly educated population. Geographically, they're an important area, growing area of the world. Um, their demographics are very good in terms of the ability to continue to have their economy growing, unlike a lot of Europe. Like long-term, Turkey is a place that you and I would want to invest in but we need to wait until Erdogan's gone. So it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I bring that up too, because I, I have a chef friend who's like, hey, um, I'm going to open up in Istanbul or I'm, you know, I want to visit Istanbul. And people are like, hey, I don't know. And that's the thing is, I don't know anything about global events to tell people anything other than like, I went there, it's delicious. But there's always like, hey, was it safe? And I'm like, it was totally safe. I mean, it's, I wouldn't want to be a woman traveling by myself, walking around even the city in Istanbul late because you're going to get harassed, right? And maybe in a dangerous way. Leaving that aside, Turkey is actually a very safe place for foreigners to be, mm. right? I mean, even when demonstrations are going on, they're usually contained in defined areas. You don't have to worry much about that. Turkey is absolutely not a safe place to be doing business right now. And in fact, uh, about a third of all Turkish hard currency millionaires have fled the country in the last two years. And that is 
That's a horrible stat. Wow. So a lot of the well-connected business people are getting their money, they're getting their kids out of the country. The internal fight, you know, when you had a, an attempted coup against Erdogan, it failed. And then he just went after everybody that was a perceived opponent, real or imaginary, dangerous place to do business. Um, I want to get you out of here, but a couple more questions. One is, um, what's going to happen with this upcoming election and the Democratic uh, Who's going to be the representative of the Democratic Party? I, I don't know. Um, I would say that right now, literally right now, uh, Trump is slightly more likely to win, in part because impeachment process was so polarized and hurt the Democrats, um, in part because the U.S. economy is doing quite well, and most people feel pretty good about the economy. Even about 40% of Democrats say they feel reasonably confident about the U.S. economy right now. That's pretty high. Um given recent U.S. history, certainly. Um, and if you look at swing states, so Trump loses in the head-to-head -head national polls against everybody, Bloomberg, Sanders, Biden, Buttigieg, it doesn't matter. But we don't elect people on the popular vote. Like, he's going to lose the popular vote, just like he lost in 2016. We elect people with the Electoral College. And when you do swing state polls, you know, your Michigans, your Wisconsin's, your Florida's, and we, we at your Asia group do proprietary polling in those swing states, right now Trump is winning. And he's winning against the moderate candidates. So right now, we'd say 60-40 that Trump wins re-election, but it's early. So there's not a lot of confidence around that projection. Who wins the nomination? I don't think Biden wins the nomination. Who do you think has the best chance of beating him? Um, you know, it's really hard to say. Uh, this is a very unusual election. I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders voters are the ones that are most likely to only vote for Bernie and otherwise not bother to show up. Problem is that they're mostly young. And traditionally in the United States and most advanced industrial economies, young people don't vote, right? So, I mean, the danger is you get Bernie, who's clearly the, the, the slight front runner right now, and they could get crushed in the election. And so I don't know. Uh, what I can tell you is this is an unusual election and Trump will be able to use the power of the presidency to push his own advantages in extra legal ways, mm. investigating opponents, for example, not ensuring the sanctity of elections against external slash Russian intervention, trying to take people off the polls in swing states as they've already done in Wisconsin, for example, trying to do in Florida. So it's really an unprecedented environment. And I think in some ways more important than who wins the election is that if the election is close, and it probably will be, half the country is going to think it's rigged against against their candidate. And so we could easily have a situation where we've had the election, we've counted the votes, and we don't know who the winner is because it's contested. It's contested in the courts. It's contested in public opinion. That's a dangerous place to be. And speaking of contested elections, uh, I promise we'd talk about Al Gore. What, what are... What, 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 now, why what? did we promise we were going to talk about Al Gore? <laughs> no, good, David. Good, good. Tell him, tell the audience. You and I, know. I voted for Al Gore. That's but not why we're talking about him. At this conference, yes, this I conference. tend to have a hard time listening to a lot of his responses to to these answers. That Even you, one of his answers. Why? Why is it so hard? Why does he keep going? <laughs> this is going to get us in trouble. <laughs> no, it's fine. He doesn't stop. Oh my lord! But I mean, clearly, he has become unmoored. 
mentally and emotionally from the fact that the presidency was, in his view, stolen from him. And he's just never going to get that back. And it was stolen from him. I mean, certainly when the Supreme Court votes in a partisan way to determine who the, who the, the winner is, um, that is not the way the Supreme Court is meant to function. It feels delegitimized. But he did the right thing because it could have really hurt the country. And instead he said, you know what? This isn't about me, it's about the country. But then of course he had to live with it. And he, the guy's not a Buddhist, right? He needs to breathe, he needs to meditate. He needs like lots of things that you and I can't give him. But, I mean, and it's great, like the fact that he's tried to do a lot to drive like response to climate change that now lots of other people have taken up. But 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they weren't doing that, right? So he, he did move the needle. But he is relentlessly insufferable, like in a small group. And and that's just hard, it's just hard to accept, right? It doesn't make him a bad person. It just means that you and I just need to tune out. And that's okay. If, like if we were sitting next to each other, we could be passing so, notes so and shit. It'd be fine. You also tune out a little bit. No, it's not just me. It's everyone in the room. But but few people want to say that because they feel like it's kind of mean-spirited, oh my God. right? I know. This is this is not easy. You 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 really turn this on me. This sucks. <laughs> We're going to get you out of here. You really? (laughs) Well, thank you, Ian, for joining us on our podcast. You can check him out, again, on social media at Ian Bremmer on Twitter and his group, Eurasia Group and G-Zero Media. There's tons, tons and tons of content of Ian on the web. Go check it out. Go check out his books. He's an amazing writer, and he's also funny as hell. So check him out. Um, thank you, guys. Keep on sending us emails at askdave at majordomamedia.com. We're just compiling a giant, giant mailbag. Probably going to do quarterly mailbag episodes. And um, give us five stars on iTunes iPod page and send in a question. We will definitely answer that as well. Um, Thank you, everybody, and uh, wash your hands multiple times, 20 seconds at minimum, hot water, and uh, we'll get through this. Take it easy, everyone.